right, we're going to get back into the word of Hebrews this week, Hebrews chapter 9. And uh, as we go into chapter 9, I want to tell you about a dream I recently had. Anybody have these kind of funny dreams where I had a message on my phone and I had to text back an urgent reply? And I started typing the text, but then I couldn't get the keys right. And I was like, okay, I got to do something else. And then the, everything was just, the keys were jumping all over the place. And all I had to do was make this simple reply and I couldn't get the reply. And then finally the keys were right and I got it. But then some advertisement pops up on the screen and it, it's like, no matter what, I couldn't get this simple task done. It just wouldn't be right. And it was so frustrating. And I woke up and I thought, oh, what a relief. <laughs> You ever have dreams like that? You have to be walking somewhere, and it's it's just as five feet away, but your foot is like in sludge, and you can't seem to move forward. It's just a simple few steps, but you're in sludge. You can't seem to go forward, and it's just frustrating. I have these kind of dreams, so now you know what kind of person is up here. Uh, but just, you know, there's good dreams, there's bad dreams. I wouldn't call these necessarily, they're not good dreams, but I wouldn't say these are the bad dreams, but they're frustrating, and they're not good. But when I wake up, I'm happy, and I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I woke up, and this is just wonderful that this isn't a stress anymore. Well, this is kind of what we're trying to get at as we go into uh, what we're talking about today, because the author of Hebrews has been taking the shadows, the copies of things, things that just never quite got right. Now, they, 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 he's not expressing them in terms as bad as the dreams I just mentioned, but Things just were never quite right with the Lord. And then until the Messiah came, Jesus came, and the substance came, and then it's like relief. It's like waking up from a stressful dream. All of a sudden, we don't have to be meticulous about sacrifices and all the ceremonies and the washings and the offerings and everything in the Old Testament, getting getting to Jerusalem to go to the temple, and everything, all the works and all the ways we have to try to get ourselves right, we could never do it. And that's the point of Hebrews. He's saying the old covenant, the old covenant could never get there. It was always just a foreshadow of looking to what was coming in which all of that would not be a problem for the, the highest to the lowest person. So that's what we're looking at. And we ended chapter 8. Uh, the verse in chapter 8 says that what is be, these things are becoming obsolete, growing old and vanishing away. All the rituals and things, but we're not done talking about them. He's going to go into the next few verses talking about items in the tabernacle, and uh, this would be instructive to the readers of Hebrews because they were familiar with the tabernacle and the things he's going to mention. Um, they're instructive to us, too. So why do we look at these? These are the copies, the shadows. It's because everything from the Old Testament it's all a preparation leading up to what's going to take place in the New Testament. They're not two separate stories happening. It's all a preparation and a making way, and there is instruction along the way, and there are types, symbols, and figures. We've talked about that, like Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark's not just a story about them being saved from the flood, but it's about being safe in the Ark of Jesus, and you're, you're free from the judgment that's going to be coming. So there's instruction in these old covenant passages. There's instruction in real life. You know, how many of you went to bed last night, woke up this morning? Anybody? Some of you haven't woken up yet. Uh, 
But there's instruction in that. It's a symbol. It's a type of death and resurrection. Every day we're reminded that there's resurrection. There are seasons. We go through seasons. Winter is coming. We go through some cold winters sometimes seasonally. But then there's spring, which brings forth new life. Um, you see butterflies. What did butterflies start as? They were caterpillars. There's instruction in these things. They changed. They were transformed into something way more glorious than a little worm. So God is revealing things to us in the natural world as well as the spiritual world. And so much in the Bible can come alive when you're reading it because if you're looking for what is it this instructing me towards Jesus or towards redemption. So as we look at chapter 9, the author's going to use some of these things that they were familiar with, and we'll see how that would bring them to an understanding of how Jesus fulfilled these things. So let's enter into the tabernacle, these first five, five verses. Are you ready to go into the holy place and the most holy place? Uh, verse 1 says, Then indeed, even the first covenant and ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary for a tabernacle was prepared. The first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. All right, some of you just heard that and said, wait, what is all this stuff? Sanctuary and tabernacle and lampstand and, and showbread and things like that. It was a different world. When Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt and God gave them the law and established a place for them to meet with him and to get their sins taken care of, they were to go to a tabernacle, not a church. I mean, we walk in the church and go through the doors and here we are. The tabernacle was set up as an outer court, a holy place, and a most holy place. That's three parts. The outer court would have an altar. It was called the brazen altar where the Israelites would bring animals to be sacrificed. And then there was a laver, a wash basin. The Old Testament word is labor, but wash basin. And uh, they would wash, they would be washed after the animal sacrifice. And then the the priests would be able to go into the first part, the sanctuary. And this is where he picks up. So we've already seen a sacrifice and a washing. And what does that instruct us about? It's, it's talking about the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus would be in the sacrifice for us, and we would be washed by his blood, the cleansing of the blood, or washed by the word, it says in some places in the New Testament. We're made clean because of that sacrifice. And so then there's a veil, and you enter into the first part of the tabernacle. Come on with me. We're going into the first part of the tabernacle now. And the first thing that is mentioned in these verses is the lampstand. Oh, wait. Let me just say first, it was mentioned that there was a tabernacle prepared. The tabernacle, what did it look like? It wasn't this beautiful building like we had, but it was made of badger skins where the covering was like a tent, and they could move the tent into different places as they traveled. Uh, as God led them. But it was just a, an ordinary covering. 
badger skins and, and it didn't look like anything on the outside. So it's just ordinary, normal. And what does that tell us? You know, we are now the tabernacles of God. The Bible says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but we're just ordinary looking people. We don't look so special on the outside either, right? So this tabernacle, some of you look more special than others, but me for sure. Um, but the tabernacle just looked ordinary, and we look ordinary. Even when Jesus appeared, he looked ordinary, and some people missed it because it, the outside just looked ordinary. But inside, things were happening. There was slaughter, and there were offerings, and there was the Shekinah glory that was in the most holy place. And it's a figure of what's happening in us right now. There's glory in the believer. There's glory in the unseen. But the outside is looking a little different. But you would go from the the sacrifice and the washing, you would enter a veil, the first part of the tabernacle inside, which is the out, from the outer courts, the first part inside. And inside it would be dark, except for there was a lampstand. So he mentions the lampstand. And that was a candlestick. You're probably familiar seeing the candlesticks. There's three candles on each side of a middle candle. The middle candle was fueled by oil and dispensed oil into the other candlesticks. This is a figure of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings forth the light in our lives. And Jesus said, you are the light of the world. He said, I am the light of the world. He said, you are the light of the world. And this candlestick was the light inside the place of the tabernacle that filled it. So in the same way, in our inner beings, when the Lord is in us, when the Holy Spirit is working in us, there's light and we're not under darkness. There's a lot of darkness outside. Even though the sun is shining, there's a lot of spiritual darkness. But the Lord is a light that can brighten us up even in these dark times, if you can receive. So there's the lampstand. Then there was a table, he mentioned, and showbread. So the table and the showbread. What does bread remind you of? And we're, hint, we're going to partake of bread today. But bread is the life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And bread symbolizes the nutrition, the sustenance, the provision for us. And it was on the table. The bread on the table could be a, a type, a symbol of the altar. And the bread of life, Jesus, was on the altar of the cross and provided for us through that. There were also other vessels on the table. And uh, I believe there was wine in these vessels because in Numbers 28 talks about the priest would dispense of wine, pour out wine as a drink offering. So it's not mentioned in, in the first part of Exodus, but later in Numbers, and there were vessels mentioned. So there was probably wine on the table with the showbread, the bread and the wine, the body and the blood of Jesus, and that represents communion. And you can have communion. What does communion mean? We think of communion as the words of eating and drinking, but communion means a relationship, a common union with the Lord Almighty, that we're actually in fellowship with him, in relationship with him. And when we eat and drink, we, we take that in. We take in him symbolically. And that can happen because of those sacrifices and washings that happen on the outside. But these were all types and copies of what was to take place later. And then that made up the sanctuary. And then you went into the second part of the temple. The second part of the temple had this huge curtain that was supposedly 60 feet wide, 20 feet tall. And it kept people out of the most holy place. This is the place where only the 
high priest could go once a year. And this curtain, Josephus says, this curtain had strands of gold woven throughout it, and the team of horses could not tear it apart. And yet what happened when Jesus died on the cross and the rocks split, the curtain split in two, it was a supernatural divine wonder that revealed to us the way into the most holy place. Before that, only the high priest, only the high priest could enter that place. And you and I may not feel so high, we may feel low, but that veil has been torn, that way has been made open, and there it is. And now he mentions the censer, the golden censer. There was an altar of incense before he went into that most holy place, and the censer wafted incense all over the inside. And in the Bible, the censer represents prayers. Psalm 141, verse 2 says, Let my prayer be set forth before you as incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Prayer is an offering, and a prayer is a way to the Lord's heart. Proverbs 15, 8 says, The sacrifices of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. You ever just go and pray for fellowship, communion with the Lord, just believing that God delights in you? can't delight in me. And it says prayer the upright. But who is the golden censor? Jesus is the golden censor. He is the uprightness that we are missing. And we are the upright in him. If we will believe that and come into prayer, it'll change your prayer life. You come into prayer believing that he delights in you. And you can sit there and just be quiet and let him love you. And you can love him back. But it comes by faith. Because we know ourselves too well. We don't feel so upright sometimes. But it's not our uprightness that he's looking at. He's looking at the uprightness of Jesus. And he is the golden censor that gets our prayers accepted to the Lord. I remember someone made the illustration of a child's drawing, just a bunch of scribble, and he gives it to his parents. And his parents say, oh, it's wonderful, even though that's just a scribbly mess. But that's what Jesus does with our prayers. Our prayers can be a scribbly mess, but the Lord takes delight. The Lord takes delight in us approaching Him. This is why we're going through this. He made a way into the most holy place. In the past, it was ceremonies, washings, protocols, and only the high priest. But the Lord's heart was for, I want, I want you. And I, I want this to be more than what was in the past. And so that's what we're looking at here. Inside was the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant, that was a box that was overlaid with gold and it had a mercy seat on top. The mercy seat was just the lid, but the mercy seat had uh, cherubim covering it and it, it, it represented the throne of God. And inside the Ark of the Covenant, there was the manna, there was a pot of manna, bread, again bread, which came from heaven, it was provision of the Lord, there was Aaron's rod, and we talked about how a few weeks ago Aaron's rod was placed in the tabernacle when there was a challenge to who's going to be the priesthood of God. And, and the Lord told all the tribes to put their rods in the tabernacle. The next morning, the one whose rod budded would be the one that the Lord had chosen, and it was the rod of Aaron. And it budded with almonds. It was a, it was a miraculous, supernatural sign and wonder of God's priesthood 
choice. It wasn't the tribe of Dan. It wasn't the tribe of Judah. It was the tribe of Aaron. And yet people complained about the manna and they rejected the priesthood of Aaron at times. And then there was the tablets of the law were put in this box. The Ten Commandments. Of course, we know the Ten Commandments were broken quite often too, but all of these things were placed in this box and covered by a mercy seat. And Jesus is this ark. This is telling us that Jesus has covered the sin of turning from these things and even has fulfilled the law, has become the high priest and the recognized authority, and he is the manna. He is the heavenly bread that came from heaven. It's all there in type, in symbol, in shadow. And God met with everyone at that mercy seat. Exodus 25, 22 says, There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, there are upon the ark of the testimony. And cherubim are mighty figures. It was the cherubim that guarded the tree of life when Adam and Eve fell with a flaming sword. And the high priest would come in once a year, the day of atonement. Now let's look at that in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 6 through 10. And as we look at these verses, let's, let's, let's come together and participate for a second. I'm going to read verse 6. You read the other verse, then I'll read the other verse. Let's, let's, let's read together. I'll start. You read 7, and then we'll alternate. We're reading verses 6 through 10. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. Wow, that's some very difficult language to work through, but basically it's just a recap of what I was saying. All these things were just for a, a time. They were only representative. They couldn't do everything, and it was only once a year that the high priest could go in. So what was that once a year? It was called Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. And all this was concerned with the outer person. Okay, I remember I said the badger skins over the tabernacle made everything look ordinary. But inside, in this old covenant uh, setup, this old covenant pattern, everything was just pertaining to what was on the outside. It could only change the outside of us did not touch or affect the inside, but it was there for a purpose. It was there to atone for sins. That means to make sure your sins were covered. Here's the day of atonement. Once a year, once a year, okay, every day, sacrifices were being made. If you had sinned, you'd bring a sacrifice to the tabernacle. The priests would do the service. But once a year, there was a special time many preparations. There were 10 days of fasting beforehand, and the priests would do the service for 
anything we might have missed, anything that wasn't covered, anything that we, we had kind of let slip, this was the Day of Atonement. And they would have the high priest go through this elaborate ceremony of cleansing and sacrifices. And he had to do it first for himself and then for the people. And they watched with bated breath as he went into the most holy place. And if he didn't get everything right in that place where the Ark of the Covenant was, the Shekinah glory of God rested, he would be smitten down and killed. Because it was that serious, it was that powerful, it was that intense. And so uh, we read in the scriptures that the robes of the high priest had bells on them. The bells were there so they could hear that he was doing the, his ceremony and, and that he wasn't you know, dead. He was still alive. They could hear something was going on. And then it's not in scripture, but tradition says that they'd tie a rope around the leg of the great high priest in case those bells stopped ringing and he must have gotten struck dead, did something wrong, and they, they wouldn't go in after him. They'd have to drag him out with the rope. That's tradition, but I can see that being a possibility. So that was a nervous thing once a year, and it was very solemn. And it was also once a year, the only day that two goats were sacrificed, offered for the sins of the nation. Okay, and goats represent evil. You talk, Jesus talked about the sheep and the goats. You've got the occult world out there. They have the goat's head and things like that. And goats are generally represented as evil. And they were sacrificed. One of them was sacrificed. They laid the hands on the goat as a symbol of transferring of sins. And the goat was sacrificed. The other goat was sent away to take the sins away. And we see that both in that Jesus became sin for us. Not only did he die and was sacrificed for our sin, but he takes our sins away. Now, this, their sins weren't taken away in this place. They were only being covered. They were only being covered until the next Day of Atonement. But all of this was by faith because they were looking to something that would happen in the future. And so the Hebrews here is talking about all this stuff. See, all this stuff was a preparation for where we're at, where you can be right now, where this is no longer the bad dream and the things that you're always trying to get right and you're just getting close to it, but you're still stuck in the sludge and things like that. And it covers you for a little bit. You're not gone yet. But now there's a relief because all these things have been changed. This was all about the outer thing, but it was limited effect. It had to be done again the next year. And it was limited access. Only the high priest could go into the most holy place. Only the high priest could do this. And others would just have to be content. Nothing would change on the inside, but they were covering themselves and they were taking care of the outside. And so the scripture says in verse 9 that we just read, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. So all this is saying, this they were going through the motions, it's all about the outer person. And, you know, one of the hardest things about religion is it'll drag you down because it's all about the outer person, the outer shell, the outer reformation, and it's, it goes forward for a little bit, and then it slips back, and then you do good for a few more days, and then, whoops, you messed up again, and everything is the outside, and then you struggle on the inside because you, you think, I could never get there, I'm never going to be good enough, and all this stuff 
is just going through every year the sacrifices and I got to get it together and it was just this isn't the place of peace this isn't the light shining in our hearts this isn't the, the relief but the next verse the next verse starts with a great phrase but Christ but Christ verses 9 uh, 11 through 14 this is what happened but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation not with the blood of goats and calves but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more? You know, plastic fruit looks nice. Anybody got old plastic fruit in their living room? It looks nice. It looks good, but don't try to eat it. It doesn't. It doesn't taste so good. You can't. It doesn't have real fruit. Will nourish you. This is what what we're seeing here. We've got but Christ. How much more will the blood of Christ do it? You've got this plastic fruit of these ceremonies and sacrifices, but you can get the real thing. Jesus, how much more the blood of Christ better than those animals that were unwilling sacrifices he offered himself. And you know what? It does something. It is much more effective, much more powerful. It just tastes better food. When we were in China at the beginning, McDonald's wasn't there. Now there's pretty much uh, McDonald's in the big cities. And boy, what a happy day when that McDonald's came. That was just like, everyone in America says, oh, McDonald's, but to us, it but before McDonald's, there were these Chinese wannabe, Western restaurant wannabes. They were trying to make Western food. And we were we were there for like a couple of years. We saw this Western restaurant wannabe. We thought, look, they're advertising hamburgers. Let's go. You know, they could we get a hand we haven't had a hamburger in two years. And so we went in and they had these menus with pictures on them. And my eyes just bulged out at these pictures of succulent hamburgers. I thought, I, we, we found it. We found the place. We got the hamburger. Look, I want one of these. Pointed to that on the menu. And they said, okay, we'll be right back out. And so they came out. I'm ready for this nice picture of the hamburger come out. What do I get? Didn't look anything at all like the picture. In fact, it wasn't even a hamburger. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't a bun. It was... A, two pieces of sweet bread toast. They didn't have regular bread, but all their bread was sweet. And there was a nice pork, pork patty, pork slab something, fatty patty, on this sweet bread toast. Not, not ketchup, but tomato paste. It was, it was tomato paste, and the cheese was goat cheese. <laughs> and another piece of toast on top that said, here's your hamburger. And I said, no wonder I've asked my students if they like Western food, and they said no. And I said, go figure. And uh, I guess I ate it. I don't know. I think we were desperate at that time, and we had to have something, and it would hold us over. The thought of it, at least, was 
was helpful. But when that McDonald's opened up, we got the real thing. And then I saw the Chinese, they were lining up around the corner to eat this food. I said, now you know. Now you know the real. And how much more is the real better than the fake? And these weren't these weren't fakes in the old. The old was just preparing the way. The old was they were copies, but they could never accomplish what the real could accomplish. So how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more will the blood of Christ? First, we say whose blood was offered. Whose blood? It wasn't the blood of bulls and goats. It was the blood of the author of life, the creator of life. Life itself shed life's blood. That's worth more than anything we can imagine. Uh, the blood of Christ was shed, and it was done willingly through the eternal spirit. This is the blood that keeps speaking. It keeps speaking. It doesn't dry up. Through the eternal spirit, the blood made the way the eternal spirit keeps the way. Your conscience cries out guilty. The blood cries out innocent. Your, your blood cries out dead works. The blood cries out cleansed. Cleansed. The blood still speaks. Remember, we learned that the blood speaks better things than Abel. What did the blood of Abel speak? If you can go back to our first Hebrews chapters. It was speaking vengeance. Avenge me. The blood of Jesus speaks cleansed, forgiven, righteous. And righteous from what? Dead works. What are dead works? Dead works is not just sin. I mean, it's, it's interesting. He's not saying he's cleansed your conscience from sin. Sin isn't the main issue here, although sin is included in dead works. But dead works are works of self-righteousness, works of empty religious rituals, of yourself trying to make good with God. And, you know, most of us have to really learn how to believe have faith that it's not by our works. It's not by our goodness. No matter what we do, we can't please God anymore or, or, or less because of what we do. It's through Christ. It's faith in Jesus. And only faith in Jesus will cleanse your conscience. Your conscience will continually cry, dead works, not enough, not good enough. And the blood of Jesus through the eternal spirit. And it says eternal redemption means it's never ending. The blood of Jesus is there because of this covenant, this new covenant. The old covenant, you'd have to worry. Your conscience would say, wait till next year or the next chance I get to get to a sacrifice. But now, you're, you still want to do that. You still want to say, I, I got to fix this mess. I got to clean this up. You can't. It's only the blood of Jesus. And the blood of Jesus says, released, clean. You have access now. But yet we want to be ceremonial. We want to feel guilty for a few days. We want to beat ourselves up for a few days. I can't pray because uh, you know I still have to hope that God forgot what I just did. God says, I'll remember your sins no more. That's too good to be true. Of course, that's the gospel. The true, too good to be true, good news. You know, this can change everything about your Christian life. Some people have a quiet time in the morning, and I recommend you have a quiet time, but I, I don't recommend you do it as a, a duty. i got to do this, or else God's going to not bless me. That's dead works. That's dead works. 
but you do it because I want to grow in my relationship. I, I have access now. I have access through the eternal spirit and how much greater blood has been shed for me that I have a relationship with God and I'm, I'm here to say good morning, Lord, and what do you want me to do today? It's, my conscience has been cleansed to serve the living God. Well, could the living God actually use a nut like me? Because of the blood of Christ, he can, and, and he doesn't have anyone that's qualified yet, but he, he takes and qualifies whoever offers themselves. And we don't offer ourselves sometimes because our conscience says, no, can't do it. But how much more will the blood of Christ cleanse our conscience from dead works in order to serve the living God? You want to have some high prestige in life, who do you work for? I work for the living God. And you know what? It's not just me that he's working for me. I mean that reverently. He's, he's done all this on my behalf. His blood is working on my behalf. In fact, he's made the way unlimited access into the most holy place. I can go directly to God. Don't need to sacrifice a goat. Don't need to wait for the Day of Atonement. I can go because this access has been opened up by the blood of Jesus. But it goes another way, too, into the most holy place. The most holy place in my life is my heart, is your heart. That's your most holy place, your spirit, your inner person. And the blood of Christ has made a way for God to have access into there without compromising his righteousness, his holiness, his goodness, his justice. He can come and dwell in these earthly tabernacles covered by badger skins because he has made the way through how much greater the blood of Christ. And it's eternal redemption. It doesn't have an expiration date. It doesn't have a number of mess-ups you have. Well, you've done your quota of mess-ups no longer. No, it's an eternal, eternal redemption. It doesn't expire. Tax day comes every year. Oh boy, here it comes again. You've got to do it all over again. Start all over again. You don't have to start all over again with redemption. You just believe that God has covered God has taken it, made it all right, and you receive. That's our eternal inheritance. So the next verses, we're not going to read verses 15 through 17, but it talks about how this will goes into effect. It talks about the covenant like a will. And in order for you to receive something from a will, the, the person who created the will has to die. And Jesus was this person who died for us, and he left us eternal inheritance, and it's an inheritance that's greater than anything your rich uncle might believe. Some people get a great inheritance on this earth, but you know, that's limited. This is an eternal inheritance, and we can enjoy it now by faith because of the things that were done through the blood of Jesus. Verse 18 to 22. And this is going to get it coming home. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. And likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. 
my, this was a bloody mess. You know, some people are inter interested in these bloody films, horror films, and things like this. This is a bloodier thing than probably you've ever seen. Blood everywhere over the, the elements, over the Ark of the Mercy Seat, the blood over the Mercy Seat, blood from all this animals, the blood splattering on the clothes of the priests and everything. Blood, blood, blood everywhere. Ugh, blood, what do you think of that? Is that a pleasant sight? No, but why? Why all this bloody mess? What was the blood to teach us? What was, first of all, in Leviticus 17, I believe it says that life is in the blood. Leviticus 17, 11, life is in the blood. So what this blood teaches us, I believe, everywhere there was blood over things, there's two things that we can learn. One, we see the messiness and the costliness of sin. Forgiveness of sin requires a substitute. It requires shed blood of another. And now, the blood of bulls and calves and goats and things could never take away the Israelites' sin. But they had to offer these things by faith. And it was faith not in those blood, bulls, and goats, but in what they represented, what was to come. And what was to come was the blood of Jesus shed for us. So the blood everywhere would be a sign, a lesson to them, an instructive picture of the depth of sin and what it requires and how it's bad. It's serious. And people make light of sin and say, oh, you're just being a prude and all this stuff. No, sin it requires blood. It's costly. And there needs to be the shedding of now, the other thing, though, on the other side of it, was blood show us, but the life, and that there is substitution. So everywhere you see the blood, and you go, sin, darkness, and guilt, and pain, and death, and yet, substitution. And whose substitution is it? The blood shows that there is a provision. There is everywhere you see, and everywhere in your life, when you see something dark, unholy, in it under the blood, there's the provision, there is the cleansing. The blood is a sign of hope. The blood is a sign of life. It shows the seriousness and guilt and dearth of sin, and it's the hope and the provision of eternal inheritance of life, forgiveness, cleansing, because of the one who went to death on our behalf, our substitute, Jesus. Amen. Amen. And uh, no wonder Paul said, I resolved to know nothing among you but Christ crucified. Do you know Christ crucified? Is your conscience still crying out dead works? Is it, are you guilty all the time? What are you knowing? Do you know Christ crucified? Because if you have that guilt hammering at your head and taking you down, you need to hold up the cross of Christ and say, Christ crucified for me. The blood, the blood over all the elements, the blood is over me. And that blood is my covenant with God. It's actually God's covenant with Jesus. God cut the covenant. We didn't have anything to do with the covenant. He made the covenant and allows us to get in on the covenant. He will never fail his covenant of blood. Because when, when people in ancient times shed blood for a covenant, it meant something. And how much more does it mean for precious blood of Christ. God will never forget his blood covenant with 
Jesus. You might, I might, but he won't. And, and we just need to remember that it's not us, it's Jesus. And under that covenant, we are free, we are changed, we are righteous. We are righteous. We are the righteousness of God. Our conscience can't cry out dead works because the blood is saying the righteousness of Christ. And it's all by faith. It's not by our works. It's not the outer person. This is the whole point. We went from the earthly, the outer works, to the heavenly, the inner thing. And it cleanses your conscience, changes your inside, and that's where the power of God, the Shekinah glory that rested on that Ark of the Covenant, can actually be working in our lives in a way that produces fellowship, communion, safekeeping, and blessing. And one time was enough. The last verse is 23 to 28. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the truth, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once, once, to bear the sins of men. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Amen. One time, no need for multiple atonements. No need to crucify Jesus again. No need to go through the rituals again, but one time for all, and it's through the eternal spirit, it continues, it continues, and that's what we have to walk under it. We don't have to keep beating ourselves up, we don't have to keep going back and, and two steps forward, three steps back. We just say, one time he covered me, I am forever covered. He doesn't have to go and do it again, and he's going to come back but this is, this is talking first about this is the value of it. All this was, what you saw through the Old Covenant was the one cent coin. What we have now is the hundred dollar bill. It's like, why would we want to keep going through the motions? Why would we want to keep making our own ceremonies, our own guilt trips, our own works to try to appease God when God has been appeased, God is pleased because of what Jesus has done. And this is where it all comes together. This is our access to God. We do not have to be afraid. We do not have to, to uh, be something we're not. We come as we are. We leave better than we were. But it's appointed for men to die once and then the judgment. And here's where all this is relevant for today. I was thinking, you know, I mean, we're talking about the tabernacle and all this Old Testament ritual stuff. How is it? People are are upset out there about what's going on in Israel and all the anti-Semitism and all the violence and all the incredulous things that are happening. But this is the point. It's all coming to this place. It's appointed for us once to judgment. Everybody's going to come to the judgment. All that's going on out there is coming to the place of judgment. 
it will be judged. It may not have justice in this time, but when Jesus returns, justice will be served, and there will be a fearful looking to the wrath of God. But to those who have placed their faith, who are looking for him, they have hopes of him appearing. It won't be a pleasant thing when he appears. What's that last verse say again? To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. He has borne our sins. He's going to make right the mess that's in the world. But this is where it all comes. We can go confidently of his presence in our lives. We have given him access to our most holy place because of the blood of Christ. Because of the blood of Christ, we can have access to his most holy place, his heart. We can be in him and he in us. That's how Jesus spoke. I am the Father, the Father in me, you in me, I in you. This is what it's about. We are safe in the most holy place. And though we can't control what happens out there, we are eagerly waiting for him to appear. He's already here. And because of this new covenant in the blood, we can expect his help in our lives. We can expect his blessing in our lives. He will not leave us nor forsake us. That's coming up in Hebrews 13. But because of the blood, he will not leave us nor forsake us. We can go through, we can have his peace, we can have his victory, we can have his triumph in a time that there's so much of that lacking in the world. We eagerly wait for him. But we can enjoy that now if we eagerly look for him in our daily lives. Just like I said at the beginning, we look for him in these elements like the, the showbread, the lampstand, and all these things. You, you look, where is Jesus in this? What does this represent? And even in your situation, in your life, what is the Lord teaching me in this? How does this point to the work of God? And how can I look to this and improve on this to, to draw closer to the Lord? The devil said, you can't draw closer to the Lord. And you say, well, the blood of Jesus says I can. In fact, I'm as close as I want to be. I can be as close as I want to be because he has torn that veil and made the way. Hallelujah. So it's time to wake up from our frustrating dreams. No more texting and having ads pop up. But you can actually get straight through to the Lord and have him 